Hello and welcome to Bird's Eye View, a podcast about the birds of the United States and the world in which they live. We take a bird's eye view as we explore topics related to birds, birding, and the natural world. This is Matthew Radford, podcast creator and host, and I appreciate you listening today. I realized today, had had a little epiphany, I guess. I like to learn facts. I like to read and learn about the natural world, about animals, about a variety of things. But how much better it is, I've realized, when you get those facts from an individual that is an expert. When I ask an individual a question and they teach me something, then they also can give me their their anecdotes, their stories. They can put the bits of information in context, where it, whether it's historical context, whether it's ecological context. They give, they give it relevance and meaning instead of me just reading something. And that's what I've loved about this podcast. I've had a, you know, I'm 20 episodes in, variety of guests, and a variety of guests lined up through the end of the year. And I love learning facts, but from my guests, because again, they give me the, the relevance, the context, the meaning behind the fact. And I get to hear the anecdotes and stories that help me remember and learn the fact. From Asha Crossbill Biology in Idaho to West Texas Bird Conservation to birding in the Rio Grande Valley or the historical changes in Iowa ecoregions, just whatever it is. I love learning these things from guests. So please enjoy the podcast if you haven't enjoyed them yet. I assume that you will if you listen to them. So please go go listen to a few more episodes. We have what I think is perfect weather here in Oklahoma or eastern Oklahoma. You know, winter's going to come eventually. But right now, fall is pretty perfect. It's 60s, 70s during the day, chilly at night, not quite freezing. So nice, nice weather. And we've had some interesting late rare bird reports, birds that are just really trickling through late or haven't left yet. Um, some scissor-tailed flight catchers still being reported. Solitary sandpiper still around. I've seen a, like I saw a solitary sandpiper just last week. A blue-headed vireo seen locally, uh, which is really surprising. And someone even reported in Washington County an American goshawk. That's, that's an incredible bird. Now that's on the west side of the state, but that, that's a great, great bird. So, some good birds around, and uh, I'm enjoying this nice fall weather to see them. Still, shockingly, no sparrows in the backyard at the feeders. But again, nice weather. They're not driven yet to stop foraging out and about. They don't need to really come to the feeders yet. I think I'm most excited about the ongoing quest to see a sawhead owl being netted and banded. We're going to, again, return to help a researcher. I say help, but hopefully we're not just in the way, but uh, help a researcher set up mist nets, try to mist net a sawhead owl, and then band that owl. Now, again, I say help. We pretty much get to hold a flashlight and watch because it's, you know, this is a heavily, uh, restricted thing we can't we can't touch the birds or any of that but we can watch watch the process and provide moral support so it's part of the oklahoma northern sawhead owl banding project so it's going to be fun we're going to do that a uh next weekend over in Tahlequah, oklahoma so excited for that i have a great guest today alex Siebert. we met serendipitously looking for Kalima warbler he is a great birder in Ohio. He's done a lot of bird banding, birded thousands, or banded thousands of birds as part of the Black Swamp Observatory. And he's involved in some great Bell's Vario research. I'm really excited to have Alex on the podcast today. Let's welcome him. Good evening, Alex. How are we doing? Good. How are we doing over there? Doing great. Good to see you. So you're you're obviously right now sitting in Ohio, right? I assume you're at home in Ohio. Sure am. Good deal. And how were things there the last week or so? Uh, all right. Nice to kind of see the the fall temperatures plunging down a little bit. And it's actually it's quite comfortable out there now. <laughs> it's crazy, actually. We are 
we're in eastern Oklahoma, it should be colder, but it was 70 yesterday and it's going to get up to 80 next week, which is ridiculous, but. Yeah, yeah, for November, that's a little wild. We've finally gotten down kind of like the 40s, 50s, so it's, you know, it's it's, it's a nice, nice temperature change and I don't have to go outside and sweat my butt off all the time. <laughs> exactly. And the nights are getting cool at least, so. Yeah. Well, Tell me, first of all, what you do, what keeps you busy day to day there in Ohio? Um, so right now it's been a lot of work. Um, so I'm a general manager for Raising Canes. Um, I actually just got um, transferred to a different restaurant that's a lot busier than my last one. So um, I just started there this past Wednesday. Um, so that one's going to be a bit of a time consumer for probably the next few months. But um, I'm hoping that by next spring it'll be... Uh, a little a little more chill i can actually enjoy some migration and not be there all the time <laughs> exactly and that anything i i have two children that have worked in in fact both are managers as well in the food services one in health food services in a hospital setting but i've learned from both of them any food services manager positions are incredibly time consuming and challenging Yes. Yeah. And I mean, I've done food service since the day I turned 16. So, you know, 13 years now. Um, and it's, it, it's a lot. And that's, and I've learned as, you know, I took the, the GM role, it, it just gets more and more uh, time consuming as you go up the ladder. So. <laughs> Good. And hopefully as you go up the ladder, you build some more vacation time for birding into that process. Yes, I've I've got a nice chunk of vacation that I've been very happy to use this year for various trips and, you know, it's it's quite nice. Well, does your love for birds also go that far back, 16 teenage? How how did your love for birds kind of start and evolve? Um, it goes back further than that. It goes back to like single digits. Um, so like some of my first memories was like my grandpa, like, you know, I'd go there while my parents were at work and he would have some bird feeders spread outside of his kitchen window. And there was nothing like super fancy, you know, just house sparrows, pigeons, but you know, little me was glued to the wall and um, it kind of made me want to get bird feeders at my own house. So me and my dad, he's a carpenter. So he would go out in his garage with me and we'd build all these feeders from scratch and I'd paint them all these wild colors and throw them up in my yard and, um, so that's kind of what got me started. Um, I remember there's a pair of, uh, pileated woodpeckers that moved through the neighborhood, um, one year and they went to town on one of the dead trees that we had in the yard. And like, that was wild to me, you know, little, little kid, me looking at these dinosaurs, just demolishing this tree. And I, I credit them with being my spark bird. Um, it was, it, it was really exciting to watch. And then kind of after that, me and my dad would build a bunch of bird houses and, you know, put them up in the yard. We got permission to put up a Kestrel box um, in a field that was a little ways uh, from my house. And I remember we were super excited when literally the first year that we had it up, we had a pair of Kestrels move in. Um, so kind of getting to see them up close was really what got me started, got me interested. Um, and then I kind of, fell out of it a little bit you know obviously during school you know not having a lot of time not you know being a normal teenager I'm like oh this is this is lame whatever um but I think it was 2014 when I was uh, in college at Ohio State um I took a an Ohio birding class for my major and I wasn't expecting you know I'm just like oh this will be easy this will you know this will just be another nice little grade I can get in there but um it kind of opened my eyes back up and was like, there's a whole different side to birds and birding that I had no idea existed. Um, and that's kind of what got me into what I know now um, of, you know, birding my net, the net that next year I did a um, big year through Ohio um, finished in first place. I think after the Western flycatcher lump, I think I had like three ten. I think that year. Um, so that, that was a, a really big starter uh, for me to kind of get back into the hobby. Mentors are always so that's a common thing as I talk to people, whether it's a grandparent or then getting into college and a good professor, but someone typically 
involves a child in birding at some level, even if it's backyard birding, but gives them that opportunity. And it sounds like after your grandpa's influence there, you just never look back and except for a little hiatus, but yeah. Yeah. And that's, I remember he had, like, he was never really like a, a huge birder or anything, but um, I still have one of his old, um, like field, I, I call it a field guide, but you couldn't take it in the field if you tried because it was like full size, uh, you know, hard back. Um, it had like all of the um, like original, I want to say they were Audubon plates in them. And, you know, I remember it's got all the old names for everything. You know, Peregrine Falcon was Duck Hawk and, and Hingo was Water Turkey. Um, but like, I remember flipping through that religiously at whenever I was at his place and just, it, it was, it was a whole other world to me. Oh, no. Now, you mentioned the uh, Western flycatcher lump affecting Ohio. Does that mean you had seen a Pacific Slope in Ohio during that uh, big year? Or Yeah, so I got to see it had to go down as a slash because no one got to hear it. Um, but we talked to the homeowner afterwards and it was actually Bill Thompson um, who passed away a few years ago. Um, but he, he said that he heard it several times and it was uh, a pack slope, but he never got recordings. He never submitted anything to any records committee. So it just kind of got accepted as the first state record slash and, became everyone's armchair lifer once this happened well, that's awesome and of course either way back back then whether it was cordlaren or pacific slope or whatever that's a heck of a bird for ohio yeah yeah and that's it was it was very unexpected for everyone but you know that was that was the the big hype bird that year was was that one and it was i think around this time of year actually it was either november or De uh, december so Cool. So how did you end up getting involved with uh, Black Swamp Bird Observatory? Tell me kind of about how you evolved into that and how and, and about that organization organization a little bit. Um, so I actually so I didn't do any like field work or, you know, internships when I was in college, which I kind of regretted. Um, but during it was spring of 2017 when I first started um, volunteering with them. Um, I had put in the application online and apparently it just kind of like disappeared into the ether and I never heard back. Um, so like I reached out um, through email and I'm like, hey, like I really want to be you know involved. I want to kind of see what this is about, but I never heard back. So luckily they were able to get me in there, kind of fast track me through, um, get me caught up on like the meetings I had missed. And I so I volunteered for. Um, the spring and fall of 2017, just kind of like learning about everything. Um, I was finally able to, cause they progress you in stages. Like when you're first up there, you're, you're carrying the, the bags with the birds in them. You know, you're, you're not allowed to touch any birds, which totally understandable. Um, and then they kind of slowly ease you in, they work, start you on kind of the bigger birds, like the blackbirds, the robins, you know, the, the sturdier ones, and then kind of progress you through to like warblers and, you know, kingless and that kind of stuff. So, um, a lot of work that first year. Uh, and then I was, my last full season with them was fall of 2019, um, just because work started getting in the way and everything. So I was with them for a total of six seasons. It, it was a lot. I ended up being able to get back up there after COVID for like one season, just for a couple of days to help out. But, you know, I live two and a half hours away from the station. So kind of makes it a little tricky. But, you know, when I was with them full time, I was driving up, staying for three days and then driving back home, working for four days and doing it all again from April through October. <laughs> yeah. So like during the spring and fall, um, we would have the migration station, which was in a part of um, Ottawa national wildlife refuge um and that would spring would be april through like the beginning of june fall i think we'd start in september go through the end of october and then during the summer we would have um breeding bird uh banding station which through the the maps program um and it was it was it was a big time investment but it was really you know it, it was very worthwhile um and i i miss it i miss it a lot so just it just so happens that I had my first real experience with helping with mist nets last night. We were fortunate to be invited to go help with saw wet owl 
uh, banding. We didn't get any owls, but we were able to go up and help, you know, set up the mist nets, monitor it every hour. And I'll be honest, it is a, it's a, it's a serious, with the protocol and the work involved and checking and just doing everything right. It's not a trivial thing. It's, I mean, it's, it, it was intense enough by, by midnight, I was exhausted. So I'm sure it's a little different with passerines, but what was your daily routine like there as far as the, the grind of helping with all that? Um, so day starts usually around like 30, 45 minutes before sunrise, um, we get there. And so the migration station is behind a nuclear power plant. So it's, you know, gated off. We have to go to security to get the key to get in. We have to sign in all that kind of stuff. So, um, once we get back there, we start setting up, like we actually had our own like shed, um, that they built back there to band in has like a picnic table and everything in there. Um, so we'd start getting that set up and then it was usually like two or three of us. So we would go, you know, there, the nets stretched out from both directions from the cabin and we'd start unrolling the nets. Um, by that point, it's about sunrise. You can start seeing the first bits of light. Um, and then after we get the nets done, we start working our way back, you know, any birds that we've caught in that first stretch, we'll, you know, pull them out put them in bags and bring them back to the station, get them banded and get them on their way. Cause a lot of times that first round is when we get like owls and that kind of stuff. Um, so when I get them back so they can find a spot to roost without getting, you know, mobbed or harassed or whatever. Um, but I mean, we had like 23 nets. So I mean, it would take probably about 15, 20 minutes to get all these nets opened. And, you know, for, for a passerine station or for a banding station in general, that's that's a lot of nets. Most passerine, you know, stations they'll maybe have like 10, 15. Um, but you know, we're right on the shore of Lake Erie, so you get a lot of birds and those nets put in the work. <laughs> um, but so you know, after we get the station open, um if we got any birds that first round, one of us will process all those birds, get them turned back loose. Um, and then someone else will go out, get the volunteers on any given day. We'd probably have maybe like four or five other people coming in to, to join us. Um, usually they were just people who could extract the birds from the nets or, you know, like when I first started, just, they're just carrying the bags. Um, so once we get them in there, um, we'd have everyone assigned to like what they were doing for the day usually split them between like two or three teams. And then each team would be led by one of us banders. Um, and then like every 15, 20 minutes, we're going through checking all the nets. And usually like if two groups are going the same direction, we just kind of leapfrog each other so that, you know, we're clearing the nets as fast as possible. Um, and, you know, if it's a super busy morning, you know, 150 birds, 200, you know, it, I think the busiest morning that I was ever up there in the spring was, I think, I think we had almost 500 birds. Um, so wow. it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it can be, it can be a lot. And there's, there's been a couple of days that we've had to close nets early just because we're so backlogged and we don't want to, you know, get too many birds that we can't keep up with safely. Um, but if we have a lot of, a lot of birds, you know, we'll look at the forecast, um, the weather forecast for the night before, see what the winds were like. And, you know, if we need more people, we'll start calling people and usually can get more people in there, but, um, usually wrap up around 11 in the morning. Um, but you know, sometimes it'd be earlier if it was super slow, um, or, you know, if the weather got crappy, if it got super hot, especially going into like June, um, you know, that it would get real hot real fast and they don't do very well when they're, you know, hanging in a net for 10 minutes. Um, so that kind of iffy, but there were some days that uh, we didn't get out of there until like one or two in the afternoon. So uh, some of those big bird days are, you know, it's all hands on deck and no one looks at a clock until we get a moment to breathe. <laughs> wow. So yeah. we're there. Did you have to make some decisions like, okay, these are resonant birds, probably not as important to ban, let them go? Or did you literally ban every bird or how did that work? Um, we banded every bird um, that we would catch. Um, the only exceptions would be, so, well, 
I mean, obviously we weren't banding birds that had already been banned. We would have a list of the starting band numbers um, that we started each day with. That way, if we caught a bird that already had a band on its leg, we could know if it was banded that day already or, you know, previously. Um, Because like even birds that were already banded, we would bring them back and record it on our like recapture logs so we could kind of look at how long these birds are staying in the marsh after they're banded. Um, you know, look at like weight changes, how quickly they're putting on weight, all that kind of stuff. So um, the only birds we'd really release at the net without bringing back were birds that we knew were banded earlier that morning. Or if um, it was like a female, as we got further into like nesting season, if it was, you know, like a cardinal or something that you could tell she's got a brood patch, you know, you can feel an egg that she's going to lay, we would usually just jot down the the band number send her on her way that way we don't have to like intrude too much so yeah and what are the minimum measurements like at a minimum how many different parameters did you measure weight wing length whatever but what were the minimum things you would have to uh quantify before you let a bird go and band it so so bsbo took a lot of very detailed measurements um so some station it, it kind of depends on what each station is looking for um but with bsbo we were taking um wing cords so like we you know measuring how long the wing is um taking um taking the weight um and then we're aging and sexing them um you know if we can some birds obviously can't sex depending on the season um but for aging them, some stations will only, you know, do like, oh, it was hatched this year or it wasn't hatched this year. Um, BSBO, we were micro-aging them to say, well, it was hatched last year or, you know, it wasn't, you know, it's at least over two years old. Um, so, and that takes a lot of practice, um, trying to pick out those limit, the they call molt limits um, between the different feather tracks and being able to interpret what that means. And, you know, some birds, it's pretty easy. Like you can tell, you know, red winged blackbirds, you can tell if a male was hatched last year or not in the spring. But when it comes to like the warblers or, you know, robins or something like that, you have to look a little bit closer because they're, they can be a lot more tricky. Have you ever calculated or how many birds do you think you have personally banded? Do you ever put a number on that? I put an estimate on it. Um, when I applied for my banding permit, um, Back in 2019, I think I said around like 17, 1800. Um, it's probably a little closer to 2000 at this point. Um, you know, I mean, because I think I banded my first bird in 2018. So, you know, those almost 2000 birds are just within the last, you know, four or five years. Do you remember any particularly memorable individual bird encounters or some memorable things that stand out? Um, there, there's a couple. Um, so like a, that first bird that I banded, you know, it was a female red winged blackbird. I remember it clear as day. Um, I like, they took my picture with it. Um, you know, it was a whole thing, super exciting. Um, and then, you know, obviously at a station built for passerines, you know, when you go out birding, you see, you know, like a blackbirdian warbler, a magnolia warbler, you know, it's, it's exciting. But when you, when you're at the station and see so many of them, it almost, it's sad to say it almost feels like the novelty wears off a little bit over time. So like for me, what got me excited was the non-passerins that we would catch sometimes. Um, we would catch, raptors were very rare. So when we got them, it was always like an event and everyone was super excited. So um, I got to ban a couple uh, Eastern Screech Owls, which, mm. were, you know, they're surprisingly calm because, you know, at this point it's, almost you know it's daylight and they're just kind of like groggy and ready for bed um but so you know screech owls are cool um sharp shinned hawk caught one when i was there and i got to be the one that banded it um and then we caught a kestrel when i was there once also which is very unexpected because it's a wooded swamp you know it's a button bush swamp don't really see many kestrels moving through the area um but we ended up catching a male um and that one was really cool um and then we also went my last spring season, we caught a breeding pair of green herons that was uh, nesting in the marsh. And we would always see them flying over, but they were never low enough to catch. And then we ended up getting both of them side by side in the same net. So, 
you know, we got to see the the little differences between the male and female up close, um, which was it was really cool. Um, obviously trying not to get stabbed in the face by them. <laughs> but um, and then we didn't catch this one, but it still plays in my mind sometimes. I was walking up to one of the nets that um for some of the nets, we built like a, a boardwalk um that goes out into the water. And I was walking up to this one net and I just heard a bunch of noise and I get around the big tree around the corner and there's a great blue heron that had flown into the net and it's like its wing was like kind of splashing in the water making all this noise and I didn't know what to do so like I took my jacket off I was about to try to like throw it over its head so I could try to get a hold of it and by the time I you know thought of anything to do it ended up getting out and flying away I don't think there was would have been any way that we could have got it back to the station, but it's still cool to think, well, like, what if? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, and that's a bird that could absolutely do some damage if it went, went at your eyeball or something. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, they, yeah they, could, they, they could kill you. Oh, yeah. They always, and they always go for the face. Them and loons is what I've always heard. You have to be super careful because. So we, uh again, last night we were with a very, just, just a great, very uh very knowledgeable and we didn't get any owls but she taught us a lot but there was a moment where she turned around and was just yelling at something i didn't know what she was yelling at it turns out she had heard a flying squirrel and she was screaming at this squirrel to get away or i will i will take care of you because she's got a last year she got a flying squirrel in the net and i guess it was just a little terror it chewed the net up attacked them it was just a mess have you got some mammals that caused havoc Oh yeah, we so we had a lot of deer in that marsh, and when a deer runs through a net, the nets, you know, it's it's done. And I mean, nets are expensive; they're about ninety, hundred bucks to replace. Um, yeah, so deer were deer were an issue, um, but we also had some kind of predatory. You know, we had um, minks were a big issue. We actually had to close the station down for a couple weeks because we had a mink that was uh, trying to pull birds out of the net. And we found we we lost a couple. Um, we walked up to the net. Wow. and Yeah. Um, so and that's, you know, when once a mink learns that there's a reliable food source, there's nothing that you can do to keep them from coming back unless you physically remove them from the area or if you remove the the food source and force them to kind of to leave the area so um other than that chipmunks a little bit um and that wasn't really a super huge problem in that location for the breeding birds um chipmunks could cause some issues because they would also try to pull birds out of the net so we'd have to set the nets up a little higher off the ground so they couldn't reach them but um that Bats were another one. Uh, luckily, I never had to extract any bats, but we had like bat gloves specifically for if we ever caught one. So okay, and actually, we see it was it was unseasonably warm last night, and she said when it's warmer, sometimes there's bats, and she did get three bats last night. And of course, as volunteers, we couldn't touch it or help her. We just had to hold the flashlight while she battled this, but it. She and incredible how good she was though. She got this bat three times out of the net and it went on its way, but it was fun at least to see him up close. Although the last thing she wanted is to see a bat up close in her in her net. But oh yeah. So yeah, well that, that sounds like just an incredible experience banding that many birds, all those experiences. What a what a cool thing. So Ohio birds in general, you had that huge big year. How many have you seen total in Ohio? And what's your what's your last first bird in Ohio or your last lifer for Ohio? Um, so like I mentioned with the Western flycatcher lump, um, I'm now up to 370, a nice, nice round number, which is wow. Um, so the last few have been pretty fun. Um, last year I only ended up getting like three new state birds. I got tricolored heron, Townsend solitaire, scissor-tailed flycatcher, um, which have kind of felt a little overdue for me, um, especially scissor-tailed flycatcher, because that was one of the last like expected birds 
I use that term very loosely. Um, but they're usually always like one day wonders. And I was always either at work or, you know, busy, couldn't make the drive. So luckily crossed paths with one last year. But um, this year has been a little bit more exciting. I've only added two, but they were much better quality. Um, so there was a Hearman's Gull in uh, Cleveland that I finally got this summer. I missed it the, when it showed up the first time earlier in the spring in Lorraine. Um, but luckily it came back around. Um, and then the pair of flamingos that showed up right after um, Hurricane I, uh, Adalia, um, that was just wild. I, I remember I was, it was, I didn't have to go into work until later that night. And I remember seeing the notification come through and usually I'm a pretty big skeptic when it comes to, to certain birds. But like, as soon as I saw that, after seeing all of the the Florida birds that had shown up, I, I'm just like, crap, this, you know, this has got to be r the real deal. And, you know, luckily I left when I did because they ended up flying off later that evening and we never seen again. So crazy that that is incredible. And I know you have a lot of, you know, seeing that many birds in one state, you have to have a lot of fun stories. The one I saw you post about was a 358th bird, the Brewers Blackbird. Recount how you uh, accidentally self found that bird, that whole story. Yeah, that was an exciting one for me. So um, like middle of April 2021, I was doing a county big year that year. Um, and uh, there's this local cattle farm um, that usually it's a really great spot. You know, we've had Sace Phoebe's there, had Western Kingbirds there, you know, a lot of really good stuff. But um, the last few years, um, there's this USDA guy from the airport that's next door that always comes and tries to kick us out, even though the farm people say that they're fine having us there. So when we go there, it's kind of just like a kind of sneak in, sneak out and kind of keep quiet. But um, I went one morning to see if the Upland Sandpipers that nest at the airport had come back. And I was just driving back. I found one of the Sandpipers you know, kind of tucked in some grass, got some pictures, decided to leave. And on my way out, I was talking to one of my friends on the phone. And I decided to stop where all the cows were feeding because there was a flock of blackbirds. I've had yellowhead blackbird there before. I was like, you know, why not? We'll just poke around and see. And I, the first bird I put my bins on was this kind of, you know, dark bird. First thing that came to my brain was, oh, that's a female rusty blackbird. And then I'm my brain's just like, it doesn't have a yellow eye. And then I started putting two and two together. And I'm just screaming on the phone like every expletive known to mankind. And I'm just like, get over here, get over here now. And uh, so like she was eating breakfast. She literally left her breakfast sitting on the counter, drove over. And I think we were able to get like six or seven people in there it was a state bird for all of us um because you know usually one person sees them and then they fly off in a giant flock of, flock of blackbirds and are never seen again um so that was that was a really exciting one um and just so happened one of our friends went the next day and he found the female and then he also found a male with her wow oh so there ended up being two there and so me and her went back and we got to see the male and the female um, ended up being able to get an audio recording of it, which was like the first one for the state. So it was super cool, you know, and, and since then, there's actually been um, a couple others like in the county over there. Um, so kind of felt nice being, you know, finding the first one there and then <laughs> figuring out that there's a pattern. With that, uh, that robust Ohio bird list, you must have had a few other stories any other ohio birding stories leap out as fun crazy interesting memorable there's there's so many and the funny part is most of them actually came from that year when i okay. was doing the the county big year um because i that was the first time i really kind of like actually got out and really like kind of pushed myself to you know go different places where other people might not be checking um but i ended up founding finding the like second county record of fish crow um and and there ended up being like a nesting attempt of fish crow in that same summer right by where i found it so that was kind of cool um the day after that my friend leslie and i ended up finding the first county record of smith's longspur um 
of course didn't get any pictures of it but had to go old school with it and go off of a, a description to hopefully get it to pass um but then it, that next month uh we ended up setting a state record for Wimbrel. um we had a flock of like 170 some fly over us at um the same park that we found the the longspur at um a friend of hers called her and said hey i just had like 100 Wimbrel fly over me and he was like maybe half an hour south of us at another park so he's like just keep your eye out you know they they might fly up your way so we're walking around the pond we're trying to keep an eye out to the skies and next thing we knew we see them coming right at us on the horizon and they flew right over our heads and it was that's cool yeah it was wild and of course our state count didn't last for more than a week because there was a flock of like 300 that someone found a little bit further north of us so it was nice while it lasted though um and then honestly, I think one of the top ones is uh, a couple of friends and I were out at that same park again. Um, later that fall, we were looking for like Nelson's and Lacan Sparrows. And we were kicking through the the mode areas along the wetland and we accidentally flushed a uh, yellow rail. Oh. And it was just the most surreal thing because it, it flew straight at me. And I, I knew what I was seeing and my brain's just slowly like checking the boxes of what I'm seeing, trying to make me believe it. And so like I yell out like, that's a yellow rail. And my friend's just like, no, I think, are you sure it wasn't a Sora? And I was like, I, I promise that just happened in slow motion. I can promise you that was a yellow rail. <laughs> so we start looking where it landed and it ended up, it was sitting underneath like this tuft of grass and it sat there for like two hours. And You're we were kidding me. Yeah, we were able to get like we didn't post it publicly because we didn't want, you know, it to be an absolute mob because, I mean, the dude who flushed it almost stepped on it. So we didn't want it to be a circus, but we were able to get probably 20, 30 people out there. They got to see it and it was starting to get dark. So it, once it started getting dark, it started getting antsy and it ran off in the grass. But, you know, there was a boy from OSU that that was his life or yellow rail and he had never seen or heard a Sora or a Virginia rail. Um, yeah. So it was, it was wild. And, you know, I mean, not many people get to say that they've, you know, seen a yellow rail 10 feet from their face, just sitting there, but yeah. it, was, it was, yeah. Well, mo yeah. Most people can't see that are seen a yellow rail period, me included. And most of them, I think a lot of them now, they have to go to Louisiana and watch one being flushed by a combine. But yeah. to see one in its natural setting is that's just that's pretty epic. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and I got to go down to that festival um, a few years back. So, you know, awesome. that that was my life or yellow rail experience. I'm like, wow, this is super cool. But yeah, like like you said, getting to actually see it, you know, in habitat and, you know, it was a completely different experience. That's cool. I was looking the other day at old historical records in Yellowstone National Park near where I grew up has some pretty solid historical records. There's such great habitat. Those more isolated uh, edges to the Madison River and Firehole River and that. But I'd like to go spend some time in there. But then there's the risk of uh, being mauled by a grizzly bear. So I haven't done it yet. <laughs> but but I my dream is to get my lifer yellow rail near home up in yellowstone national park we'll see if i ever do it but but that's a that's a heck of a bird you've had such great ohio birds so is there a bird that you could realistically say well this is probably the next one i could get in ohio but you're probably way beyond that this is just mega rarity now yeah yeah at this point like the the slow climb beyond this number is probably just going to be anything that's out of left field and you know i Right now, we actually have the second state record of black chin hummingbird, um, like an hour, not even an hour north of me. Um, so I have a feeling it might be a hummingbird that I end up getting, you know, like, uh, you know, if we get like a mango or, you know, anything like that. But otherwise, I honestly don't know. Um, I'm I'm currently trying to focus on like mostly county birding. Um, so. Right now, my county list here is 289. So I'd really like to get that over 300. Um, nice. So far, I think only maybe like two people 
here right now that have it over 300. So that's, that's where my sights are for now. Um, we just had a, a Rufus slash Allen's hummingbird show up, uh, last week at someone's house, like 20 minutes from my apartment. Um, I went and saw it, but it looks like it has disappeared already. So I don't think it's going to get banded and like confirmed as to what it is. So going to have to let that one go and hope we get one that actually sticks around, but nice. And I, I did look through my eBird. I was traveling on the way to Rhode Island. I spent one night in Ohio. So I do have like six birds in Ohio from the, the patio at the hotel. So listen, that's how you do it. That's how you do it. So tell me about the biggest week at McGee Marsh. Obviously at some point I do want to come there and, and participate in the biggest week. And it looks like, I mean, some people love it. Some people, maybe it's, they're a little anxious with crowds or whatever, but they just, it's not for them. But what's your experience with the biggest week at McGee Marsh and how did you, how do you like that? And how many times you've been? Um, I, I usually try to go every year. Um, even if it's only for like a day, um, I, I enjoy it. Um, for me, it's more so almost kind of like about networking and kind of catching up with people you haven't seen in a while. Um, especially, you know, the last few years, um, not really, you know, the, not having the festival during COVID and not getting to see very many people. So, um, it's, it's enjoyable, you know, you're on the boardwalk and you just kind of leisurely make your way along and, you end up spending three hours on there because you keep running into people that you know and haven't seen for a while. So um, I think that's probably the best part of it because, you know, really you don't have to be up there to see the birds. You know, you're going to see them almost anywhere you are, Um, especially along the lakefront. You can go wherever you don't have to be on the boardwalk, but getting to see, you know, the numbers of birds, especially if it's a real like fallout event, um you know that's there's you can't really beat it when they're right in front of your face they're hopping on the the guardrail and just you know they don't care because they're exhausted they're hungry and they're just doing their thing and not paying attention um especially when you know curtland warblers if they start showing up i mean last year was actually a really good year for them i think we had probably three or four um a couple of them actually stuck around for you know about a week and put on a really great show and so that's that's exciting, you know, when you you see all these Kirtland's Warbler reports showing up. And, you know, I haven't been able to actually guide any of the trips for the festival in quite a few years. Um, but I still have my gold cap in my closet. So whenever I go up there, I always take it and I'll put it on if I go, you know, on the trails or on the boardwalk and, you know, I'll help people get on birds and, you know, kind of like an unofficial guide. But <laughs> Yeah, I, I definitely have to go one of these years just to, just because I, well, I love habitat. I love conservation. I like to go see new habitats and conservation uh, networks. And then I rub shoulders with, as I, I've spent most of my life kind of birding by myself, honestly. It's, it's been the last couple of years that I've really networked more and becoming part of the broader birding community. So it'd be fun just to go meet people I've talked to and never met and so yeah, definitely the next year or two, we're going to get up there, I think. So we did serendipitously meet in Chisos Basin this year. So saw each other briefly in the parking lot, saw each other going up the trail, down the trail for Kalima Warbler. So tell me about your Kalima Warbler uh, experience that day. What was it like to get up there and get Kalima Warbler? Oh, it was so fun. Um, so I went with a couple friends um, and, you know, me and Leslie, we had been talking about doing this trip for so many years and we were actually gonna book it you know for 2020 and then you know when COVID happened obviously that got kind of delayed and every every year since we've been talking about okay well like this year and then it didn't happen so um finally being able to knock that one out was was really exciting and you know everyone was telling us oh this hike's gonna be awful you know you're you're gonna be exhausted it's gonna just be a really hard hike it's gonna be so hot and I was very excited to not feel that way. Once it was done, it was actually not bad. Um, I mean, I think the day that we went up, I think we picked a pretty good day. Um, You know, the weather was good. The clouds kind of kept the temperature down. And, you know, I, I was excited. I didn't even want, I didn't want to come down. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we we did get lucky with that weather. I remember coming out and the almost on the way out, there was a little break in the cloud and the sun was hitting us. But yeah, it was it was really pleasant temperature. We could have been done a lot worse that day. Oh yeah. Um, but so yeah, I mean it was exciting. Um the only in addition to the Kalimas, um, the only other lifer I got up there was uh, the Mexican whippoorwills on the walk up. Oh. So that was exciting. I had been to Arizona, you know, three or four other times to try for him. Um, was never there at the right time of year, but it was nice to to come into contact with them uh, here. Next, hopefully I'll be able to actually get eyes on one, but I'll have to settle for, for hearing them for now. Nice. Well, what other... What other birds do you need that are unique to Texas, or do you have pretty much most of those Texas lifers that are unique to Texas? Um, I've got most of them. Um, I think this was my, I want to say, third or fourth time in Texas. So um, at this point, I think about the only thing I really need is the brown jays. Um, I, If they stick around into next year, I would love to go down and try to get them. Um Still need Ferruginous pig meow, but um, I know that, you know, I can get those in Arizona too. So though Texas ones are probably easier, but, you know, if they're on King Ranch trying to get in there and get access to them is going to be a little tricky. So that's about it. Um, or whatever wild rarities decide to show up down there. But well, how many on your U.S. life list? Um, I think, you know, let me, I'm gonna have to check. Give me one second. Cause yeah, yeah, no problem. I know it's, I know it's getting up there. Um, I know it's more than mine. I, I'll bet you right now. <laughs> if you've got 300 just in Ohio or closer to 400 just in Ohio. Um, so my, my U S list is 589. Excellent. Wow. So you're getting to the point where you can start looking toward that 600 mark yeah yeah i'm yeah. hoping i'm hoping my next trip will do it nice now where would that be where do you where do you see as your next trip to really push over 600 so i was thinking about i would like to do a california trip next year um that's going to depend on you know just cost but um because i had planned to go to california in 2020 and two days before I was supposed to leave was when all everything shut down and all the flights got canceled. So I'd like to be able to try to rebook that one. But um, I know that a couple of us were planning on going to Colorado next year um, and try for like black Swift. Um, and then, you know, I think both sage grouse might be a little difficult with the time of year we were going to go, but they're possible. I still need like three toed woodpecker, Clark's nutcracker, that kind of stuff. So oh, cool. If that doesn't push me over 600, it'll get me, get me right to the edge. Nice. That's really cool. Yeah. Well, well let's, uh, let's talk about Bell's Vireo. <laughs> I know. And I'm all, uh, when you ask people about their favorite bird, you are the first person I've ran across that their favorite bird is the Bell's Vireo. And I think that's awesome. Uh, tell me why it is. Why is that your favorite bird? Honestly, there it's like you said, it's a very unexpected answer. Um, but I honestly, they're just, they're such cool birds. Um, like the first time that I ever saw one or heard one, like the song was kind of what drew me to them. Um, just it's such a unique song. And, you know, at least for the Eastern birds, we get uh, the benefit of ours being also pretty to look at, um, you know, super colorful, lots of yellow, lots of green on them. The Western birds are kind of meh, especially with the least uh, subspecies, but you know, we 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 get the good end of the stick out here, so they're a treat for the eyes and the ears. But um, they're just they're really spunky. They've got a lot of energy, a lot of charisma, and you know, I I can spend hours watching them and did this year and still not get bored. Nice and and honestly, we do. They are one of our favorite birds here as they breed here, and they're. They sing and they're vocal well, well into summer. The heat of the summer, we can always listen to some Bell's Vireos. Like you said, they're spunky. There's there's times where you can just tell they don't want me around. They're just like they're they're just irritated with us be, being in their space, which I always appreciate. They want some uh, solitude. Yeah, just great, great birds. So when did you see your first 
Bills Virio, where was that at? And and correct me if I'm wrong, they just barely get into Ohio, right? You don't have a lot of them. No. Um, so first one was actually here in central Ohio. Um, it was back during my big year in 2015. Um, you know, they're back then they were super uncommon. I mean, we would maybe get one or two that would show up every spring, like during migration, but they were not, you know, any sort of expected breeder. They were not, you know, reliable by any means. Um, but you know, now we have, I think I had at least eight pairs that I was working with this year. Um, and we had, at least I think one or two other birds that just showed up during migration at different other locations and then moved on. So, um, yeah, we're like, we're the furthest Eastern, the, the largest and furthest Eastern, uh, population of them breeding, um, in the East. So it's, it's oh, kind wow. of a weird situation, which is kind of what made me want to start working with them. Okay. Well, tell us about that. The, the work, the research, the process, just kind of give a, a summary and then i'll probably ask you some more questions about it yeah um so like i said largest furthest eastern population there's a few kind of further east but like from what i've been able to see like on ebird and stuff it's only maybe like two or three birds um whereas opposed to our you know almost 20 birds here um and i i really want to look at you know how stable our population is um if they're the same birds that are coming back, um, if there's any movement between the sites. Right now, I have three different sites that I'm working at. Um, two of them are on Metro Parks property. Um, one of them is on the Franklin Soil and Water Conservation District property. Um, so, you know, I want to see if there's any movement between different sites, um, just movement at each individual site. See, you know, um, I already saw some kind of interesting movement between the birds when if they had a nest failure and kind of how long they would stay in that same area before they would give up and move um and just kind of breeding success overall with them um so i'm banning all the birds that i'm able to capture um with the the federal like aluminum band but also with um like colored plastic bands so that i don't have to capture them again to see individuals um and then other people can also help me with the research by going out and reporting them um so that's fingers crossed next year will be kind of the start of the fruit of my labor um seeing you know if any birds come back if they go to different locations so i'm really excited for that um but the males are by far the easy, easiest to catch um they literally i'll set the net up and once i figure out kind of what uh, what window they're they're flying back and forth towards. I try to find the nest first if they already have a nest going so I can be mindful of that. And then usually they're very specific um, about the flight paths that they use when they're building the nest, when they're going to and from the nest. So that makes it pretty easy. They're creatures of habit. Um, but um, the females have been a little bit more tricky um, because A, they don't really respond to any playback like the males do, but they also are a lot more um skulky and less reliable they're you know they'll come in from all different angles and work their way you know i've seen them crawl on the ground and then hop up the bush so i've banded what i could i think i got i think four four females this year which i'll call that a success um and kind of move forward with that but um you know i learned it's really difficult for them to be successful with actually getting chicks hatched and fledged. I mean, every, almost every single nest that I found got hit by cowbirds mm. and, um, or, you know, cats or, you know, whatever predators, cause they only nest like one or two feet above the ground and they're, yeah. So they're real easy pickings for anything. And um, every single time that the cowbirds hit, they would abandon the nest and try again somewhere else um so they were they're very persistent and what it seems like to me is that they just try to outlast the cowbirds um and because you know as the season goes on the cowbirds are going to be less inclined to keep laying the eggs and keep you know trying um so i think i finally got my first confirmed fledging almost at like the end of july middle or end of july um which is you know pretty late by 
you know, bird standards, but um, I think I ended up having four nests that fledged at least one chick out of them. So I was able to band one of the nests. Uh, I was able to band the the chicks there. So um, I'd be interested to see if any of them come back. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to end up banding more nestlings just because it's it's very small window for them to, you know, be big enough to put the band on, but small enough that they're not going to try to fledge too early. So have to kind of see how that goes forward. But So they've definitely moved. They've uh, expanded the range into this area from previous years. They're, they're on the move. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it seems like, you know, our population's holding strong and, you know, possibly even increasing. So it's really interesting to look at that compared to the Western birds that seem to be, you know, declining, especially with the, the least subspecies. Um, I think they're listed as threatened or even maybe endangered. It's kind of interesting to see, you know, how they're faring over here compared to out there. So are you affiliated with, do you have a, a, a sponsorship? Do you have some support from organizationally or how does that work? Um, so I'm self-funded. Um, okay. I buy everything myself, um, but the um, Ohio Ornithological Society um, kind of officially sponsored me um, because when I was trying to work with Metro Parks, um, they said they were very um, apprehensive about just, you know, letting any normal everyday person just go out and do whatever research project. So um, they wanted to see some kind of formal sponsorship, which I understand. Um, but I reached out to OOS and they were excited to, you know, put their name on it once I sent them my project proposal. So um, they're officially the name that's behind me. Um, and it's, it's really helped out. Oh, that's cool. And I will, for the listeners, I will put whatever information you send me in the show notes about the research, pertinent information. And then if you do have some sort of way, way, People could donate, you know, if someone wanted to donate to the cause or I, I'm sure you'd always appreciate some funding for the the research efforts. So, oh, yeah, because that's yeah. Uh, depending on the data that I get back over the next couple of years with, um, you know, the just the bands, I would ultimately like to uh, deploy some sort of like GPS tracking um, or either MODIS or something like that, because um, I'd like to look at you know, where these birds are going when they leave here. Um, you know, the the migratory pathway for them, where they spend the winter, it's not really super well known. Um, so depending on what I find with these birds that I've already banded, hopefully that might be a next step. Awesome. That, that's cool. Now, so you're gainfully employed now in, you know, food services unrelated to ornithology. Do you eventually, you, you anticipate, eventually wanting to work more full-time in avian research conservation or do you know or where do you see yourself as far as ornithology in the next decade or so or have you thought about that I haven't really thought about it too much um i'm not really sure how much that would end up paying the bills so it might end yeah. up still just kind of being a side project um but you know ultimately i would like to see something worthwhile come out of this project um whether that's you know publishing something um or you know helping with you know the conservation for them um what i'd really like to see at least on like a smaller scale is um i'm not really sure of any sort of conservation plan for the habitat where our birds are located um and they you know they've told me they don't have any plans to manage the habitat specifically for them so it would be kind of nice to kind of come to them with you know actual data and be like hey you know this is what i found and i think it would be lucrative for you to at least take a look at it consider it um but that's kind of about as far as i've thought about it um but you know even if it just stays as kind of a passion project for me i think you know that's i'm still doing something that i enjoy so i think it's still worthwhile and oh absolutely yeah, and in fact, I think the most worthwhile things are ultimately if there's a bird that we love and we know that they could be threatened or we don't understand their migration or habitat that, man, any anytime we can get data to understand what they're doing so we can protect them and protect their habitat, that's 
incredibly useful. So kudos for just trying to understand the bird that's probably not as well understood as we could. So then we, you know, that's gonna that's just gonna take steps to save it ultimately if it needs some conservation. So, well, I really appreciate this. You, we could talk for hours and hours because you have such a robust history with birds and doing such great things out there. Um, I bet we'll bump into each other some somewhere out there birding again. Oh, I'm sure. I I fully plan on traveling more and. You know, if you're planning on coming to Ohio for Biggest Week, I'm sure I'll be up there. Yeah, all right. We'll talk to you soon, Alex. Really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me. Take care.